The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we continue to worship God. We've worshipped Him in singing. Now we're going to worship Him by hearing from His Word. And we continue our topical series on worship. And we've come to the part of this on the means of grace. Means of grace are designated channels through which God gives us grace. And today we're talking about prayer. Coming to the throne of grace to receive grace. The designated channels of grace through which God gives us grace are His Word, the ordinances or sacraments, and then prayer. And we're going to begin with prayer because this is actually where our confession of faith begins, putting an importance on it. And it really is quite important. I want you to imagine for a second that uh, you knew the President of the United States. Let's say it's a President you voted for and liked. Okay? And this President said, here is my private cell phone number. Anytime you call, I will answer and I will do what you ask. That would sound too good to be true, wouldn't it? In fact, if people knew that you knew the president personally, you had a personal line to him, you would probably have people constantly coming up to you. Hey, can you can you can you ask the president that hey, can you tell can you talk to the president about this? Hey, can you tell the president about this situation? There'd probably be a never-ending flow of people coming up to you when they realize you have such a privilege. And I want to say to you today that we have something greater than that. We have something greater in having a line to God Almighty, who is infinite in power, for whom nothing is impossible, and who promised anything you ask in my name, this I will do. We have this privilege in an always available, never broken down line called prayer. This line of communication is established by Christ, our great high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. He's on the job 24-7. Prayer is as if God Himself gave His private cell phone number and said, call whenever and I will answer. That is a tremendous privilege. It's a tremendous blessing. How... Can we treat it so lightly? It's the line of communication with God Himself where we praise Him, thank Him, call out to Him, seek His face, commune with Him. And since worship, as we've been talking about, what we're doing here is sacred worship, is a dialogue because God is present with us. Because He speaks to us through His Word, but we also speak to Him. And how we speak to Him is through prayer. Through praising Him, but through prayer. That's one of the channels. And So we're going to talk about prayer today. We're going to look at three aspects of prayer. Public prayer, that that is we pray together. 
uh, as a congregation during the worship service. The purpose of prayer, second. And then third, the promise of prayer. So public, purpose, promise, first, public, prayer. Look over at Acts 2.42 to begin with. Acts 2.42 to see this. Here we have the early church. You ever want to peer into the worship service of an early church? Well, we get a small window here. Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 says, And they, these early disciples, these first uh, disciples, this early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So here in this glimpse of the early church, we see what they were devoted to. Uh, this comes in the context of Peter has just preached on uh, the day of Pentecost, and through that preaching, the spirits outpoured, many believed and were saved and then baptized. And right on the heels of that comes this verse about what believers of the early church were committed to or devoted to. And we notice that even though this was a day of extraordinary gifts, we just saw the spirit outpoured. They were speaking in tongues. We see in verse 43 that they were in awe because miracles were still being done among them. Yet despite all that, what were they devoted to? They were devoted not to the extraordinary gifts, but to the ordinary means of grace. Apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread. Can you imagine if these gifts are still going on in our day? Let's say Doug can, can do these amazing gifts. I mean, we would say, Man, we can really grow our church. We can really draw a lot of people in. You know, let's send Doug out to you know the the, the middle of, of Pal and Coding. Do your thing, Doug, and and watch. You know, all do all these signs and miracles, and we're going to devote ourselves to that. I think that might be our tendency. But you see the tendency of the early church here. They were able to perform these signs and wonders, and they stood in awe of that. But what did they devote themselves to? The word devoted applies to these things. The apostles' teaching which is contained in the Scriptures. We still have that today. It's summarized in our creed, the Apostles' Creed. It comes from the Word of God. They were devoting themselves to the, the teaching of the Word of God. It also says that they were devoted to the fellowship. And you'll notice the notoriety in all of these. The, the, the. It's something very specific in particular. It's not general, but it's something specific. This is not fellowship in general, but the fellowship. Which is referring to the gathering of the saints. It also says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Again, this is not breaking bread in general. This is the breaking of bread, which is a term used for the Lord's Supper. Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. So they were committed to the Lord's Supper, uh, to these ordinances. And lastly, they were devoted to the prayers, it says. Once again, this is not praying in general which we're all commanded to do, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, but something particular and specific. It's the prayers. Uh, given the context, specifically where we find the fellowship, this is referring to praying in public worship. And so they were committed to this in the early church. And we see uh, we're also commanded towards this in 1 Timothy 2. So turn over to 1 Timothy 2. 
again, we're looking at the point of uh, the public nature of prayer. We're to pray in public worship, this corporate gathering. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the command here is clear. We're to pray. Several words, different words are used with regards to prayer here. And Paul specifically hones in on prayers for kings and those in authority and high positions. And this is for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. So that we are at peace with authorities and unhindered as the gospel goes forth. You know, one of the greatest hindrances and sources of persecution to the spread of the gospel is when evil men come into authority, usually government. That's, that's involved in it. And one of our missionaries we support came back because they were really clamping down in the region that he uh, was in. It's, it's, it's a real issue. And so Paul says we need to pray for this. And Paul will go on to say in verse 4 that God desires all people to be saved. Now all people here does not mean every individual who has ever lived is living or will live. Rather, Paul has in mind not only Jews, but also Gentiles, given the storyline of the Bible. And also what he says in verse 7, his mind is taken to, I'm made an apostle to the Gentiles. And why does he say in this parenthetical statement, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, when is it that you have to say things like, I am telling the truth, I am not lying? It's when it there's a level of, Un, uh, incredibility to it. There's a level of uh, that, that that doesn't that's hard to believe. Why is it hard to believe that Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles? I mean, today we're like, well, yeah, duh, we're Gentiles, we believe. What's the big deal? Back then, you understand that the gospel is now now exceeding the bounds of Israel and going to all peoples. That's what Gentiles refers to. And so when God when when Paul says. God desires all people to be saved. He's saying it's beyond Israel now. Hence, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I am telling the truth here. I'm swearing an oath that this, this is the case. So the church is to pray for the advancement of the gospel to all peoples, tribes, and tongues, and all nations by praying for authorities that the gospel may go forth. And that's why he begins 1 Timothy 2 with, first of all, then. It's pulling out of the context of Christ's coming for salvation. So verses 3 through 7 are really a parenthesis as to why prayer for authorities is important. Because the gospel is going out to all people, so the gospel can go out unhindered. But then Paul resumes his thought regarding prayer from verses 1 through 2 in verse 8. So in verse 8 he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger Quarreling. So the context is obviously a gathering uh, because men, plural, are called to lift up holy hands, which is an idiom for prayer without anger or quarreling. 
obviously, you have to be together if there's a possibility of a fight, right? Also, we see uh, the context is public worship. I, what Paul goes on to say regarding women's roles. In verse 12, he says that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, we have examples in Scripture of women teaching men and that they give correction. We see Priscilla, for example, taking Apollos. Apollos was a, was a preacher and a teacher. And after he was done teaching, uh, she and her husband took him aside and corrected him, taught him, so that he would teach more accurately. So it's not an absolute statement, but rather why it's forbidden here is because this is the context of public worship. So the context of this praying here is public worship. Now it does not say only pastors are to pray, but rather the men. So we have examples in Scripture of pastors, of ministers leading the congregation in prayer where only the ministers praying uh, to God out loud in the, in the uh, presence of the congregation, like Nehemiah, like Solomon. But then here we see a command for men to pray in corporate worship. And so this is where we get our notion of a corporate prayer meeting, which this church used to do. We actually hope to start again for the afternoon service, adding 15, 20 minutes to that where we spend time praying together. And Paul says that this is to happen in every place. Now, this doesn't mean that we, need to go, that we need to go around, travel all around the world and pray in every place. Rather, every place there is a church. This is a universal command for all churches, not just particular to Ephesus in 1 Timothy, but every church is to pray in corporate worship. So the public nature of prayer. A second aspect is the purpose of prayer. Now let's look at a biblical example from Solomon's prayer, dedication of the temple, in 2 Chronicles 6. 2 Chronicles 6, so turn over to the white pages, as I like to call it. That is, the pages that are not as smudged. You know, we usually don't spend a lot of time in Second Chronicles or those books. We spend more time in the Psalms and whatnot. But Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 6. Here we have an example of the, of the pastoral prayer, of the minister leading the congregation in prayer before God. And first of all, notice the context of this. Prayer in verse 12. You still need some time to turn there? Just kidding. Somebody's still turning. Stop drawing attention to me. Uh, verse 12 of Second Chronicles 6. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. So Solomon is before the altar of the Lord. This is the place where worship happens. The sacrifice. In the courtyard of the temple, the Lord's special presence. And also this is the presence of all the assembly. Again, we see the assembling of God's people for public worship. So this prayer occurs in public worship. In this prayer, and in this prayer, Solomon first praises God, acknowledging who he is. In verses 14 and 15. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. 
you spoke with your mouth and with your hand, and with your hand have fulfilled it to this day. So this starts by exalting God. Hallowing his name. Hallowed be your name, God. Let's talk about how your name is hallowed. And then there is a petition based on God's word in verses 16 through 17. And I would argue this is let your kingdom come. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my laws as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant. Let there be a king under the throne. Let your kingdom be established and come. And of course, this points to a greater David, right? Uh, he is that true king. Because his promise with regards to the throne being established is, if only your sons, David's sons, pay close attention and walk in my way. How did that work out, David's sons? Not too well. Except for one son, right? Ah, the true king. He comes and he walked in the Lord's way perfectly. He is the king. He is on his throne. And he is seated on the throne until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And so we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. May your kingdom advance on earth. And then we see Solomon pray for the requests of his people to be answered. Verse 21. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Oh, we, we come and we bring our petitions to God. And then there's a prayer for forgiveness of sins at the end of verse 21. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you live, oh, forgive us our sins, O Lord. And what follows in verses 22 through 40 are several specific sins that Solomon preemptively confesses and after the people. So there's confession of sin here in this prayer. This generally follows the Lord's Prayer, which is the general format for how we are to pray. And we see elsewhere that we are to pray for our nation. We saw this in 1 Timothy 2, and we also read this in Jeremiah 29.7, which says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for, it's in, well, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Say, well, you know, I'm not in exile in Babylon. Except that you are. Because 1 Peter 2 says we're exiles and strangers in this world. And Revelation uses Babylon in a figurative way to refer to this world. We are exiles in Babylon. We are not in that eternal city. We're waiting for that city to come, that eternal promised land. In the meantime, we live here in this world. And we're to pray for the city and the nation that we live in. And that's why we take time in the pastoral prayer to do that. And we are to also pray for the welfare of our church. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we are to pray for other churches, missionaries, the progress of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So this is the purpose of prayer. This is why we are to pray in the worship service. A final aspect of prayer 
is the promise of prayer. And here I want to do two things. I want to talk about the importance of praying in the worship service, but also just privately. Just to encourage all of us to be in prayer, to, to pray. And for this, I want us to look at John chapter 14. So please turn over to John chapter 14 for this. John chapter 14. John 14, verses 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in light of his upcoming absence, Christ talks about prayer. Because this is precisely how we commune with God. This is how we commune with Him. And the reason we have this wonderful privilege is because, as Jesus says twice in these verses, we ask in His name. We ask in His name. To ask something in His name does not simply mean we utter the words in Jesus' name. You ever wonder why we, we say that at the end of the prayer? You say, okay, I know I need to say that. I hear people say that, but why? Why say that? Is it kind of like a magical spell where it suddenly becomes true because I utter those words? Well, what it means is that we are approaching God based on Jesus' authority, Jesus' merit, Jesus' reputation, and Jesus' work, not our own. You know, there was a, a car repair shop I would go to uh, in Omaha when I lived there. That was my hometown. Grew up there. And uh, I went to, to this car repair shop because I was treated very well there and received a substantial discount from them. And the reason for that is not because they liked me, but because they knew my grandfather. My grandfather used to be a mechanic. He worked on radiators, and they knew him, and they, they highly respected him and, and loved him. And because I was his grandson, they gave me special treatment. They gave me a discount and made sure I was well taken care of. So in that sense, I came in my grandfather's name. If I came in my own name, I wouldn't have received any of that. But because of who my grandfather was and because of that relationship, they gave me this special treatment. Well, we are sinners and should be thrust out of God's presence, forsaken by Him, if we were to come in our own name, our own merits. But praise be to God, Christ has made His name available for us to stand before God. And God will certainly receive and hear us because we come in the name of His most beloved Son, His eternal Son, whom he, in whom He is eternally pleased. And so we have bold and confident access in God, to God through prayer by coming in Christ's name. And this is one of the amazing blessings of the Gospel. We can make use of another's name. We can make use of Christ's name. That all His reputation, all His goodness, all His holiness and righteousness, we can come in before the Father. We could come as if we were 
Jesus Himself in a sense. Not that we are, but coming in His name. Covered in His merit and blood. Clothed in His righteousness. And so we come in His name. And look again at what He promises in in these verses. In verse 13, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do. Verse 14, again, If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Once again, imagine the privilege. The President saying, Call me anytime. I will answer. And whatever you ask, I will do. And yet we have something greater because the President has limits. God doesn't. He's infinite. Now, of course, we have to define what's meant by ask whatever. We need to always remember that when we read any verse of Scripture, it needs to be read in light of the whole of Scripture in order to accurately interpret it. Uh, James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. All you have to do is ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so this is uh, the qualification in asking whatever we want. Uh, Coming before the throne of grace should never be an opportunity to expand our self-indulgence. Our self-centeredness. God, I want a million dollars right now. God, I I want you to remove all the difficult people out of my life and put people uh, in my life who who only affirm me and treat me well and recognize my greatness. It's not going to happen. When we ask for things that are are self-centered, God is kind enough to deny us. And and also, we we tend to focus on, God, remove this difficulty from me, uh, make my life better, but God's purpose in our life is is not to give us our best life now. While He does give us relief from things, His purpose is to sanctify us uh, even using trials and difficulties that we can expect so that we are conformed into the image of Christ. And also God doesn't doesn't answer immediately. He's not a genie in the bottle. Just, Just rub the the bottle and a genie comes out and immediately does it. It's not how we're to, to treat God. God oftentimes teaches us patience and not giving us these things right away. So we continue to seek Him. And hence we, why we have in Luke 18 Jesus saying this parable of this widow who kept going to this unjust judge wanting justice. And because she kept pestering Him, he finally gave in and gave her her request. And God's not an unjust judge, but He's saying this is how you persevere. Keep going to God. If the unjust judge will grant her request, then how much more God who is perfectly just. And also, God may not answer the way that we expect Him to. Remember that, that Paul asked several times for a thorn in his flesh to be removed. And whatever that was, we can all agree it was a great difficulty. God, remove this great difficulty in my life. Perhaps it's a besetting sin. Perhaps it's uh, just a great uh, difficulty from another person. And Christ answered him. And he didn't answer him with, okay, I'm going to do it. But he answered him with, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my power is perfected. 
And so that's how God answered. I'm not going to remove the thorn. I'm going to give you the grace so that in your weakness you know my strength. And so he does answer us, but he answers us in the way he sees fit that's perfect and infinite in wisdom. And in that request of Paul, it was to glorify God and not merely to relieve our difficulties. His strength is magnified in our weakness, Christ said. And so asking whatever we wish does not mean asking things that just go our way all the time. But for God's honor and glory. And we see that in verse 13. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. The focus needs to be on the glory of God. As Jesus taught us to pray, first and foremost, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First request, the top request. May you be glorified. May your name be exalted above all names on the earth. In your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to be asking things in accordance with God's will. And that's why John says in 1 John 5.14, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so what Scripture says in our verses here in John 14, 13-14 assumes these other things in God's Word. That we're asking things in accordance with God's will. And so some of the things that we can ask according to God's will that will be granted us are things like, Oh God, change my heart. Change my desires. Work in me that which is pleasing uh, to you. Deliver me from this sin that so easily entangles me. Strengthen me. Oh God, please grow my church in unity, purity, holiness, and strength. Oh God, please sanctify my brother or sister in Christ who I'm concerned about who's living in sin or perhaps strain or being proud. Now, Charles Spurgeon makes a wonderful point in his book on prayer when he says, it will not make them humble to grumble about it. Go and pray the Lord to cure him, for your anger will not do it. Pray him down, brother. Pray him down. Have a duel with him, choosing the weapon of prayer. You see, we try to manipulate things. Uh, we trust in our own strength and our own self. And so we get anxious when we not, may not be in control of something. And, and we make sure that I'm not going not gonna to come into another difficulty again. I have to be in control of that. And so then we get burdened and worried over it or get angry. And it demonstrates we don't believe what God is saying here, that whatever we ask, He will do. And there's maybe some things I don't know what God's will is in this. I'm going to ask anyway, and God is usually pleased to answer many of those requests. This is not to say that we can't point out sin, gently rebuke or correct others, but I try to change them or make, take matters in our own hands if Christ has promised that whatever we ask in His name, this He will do. And maybe you'll find out that it's you that needs to be changed. See, when others sin against us, yes, they need to repent. and Yes, they need to be loving towards us. God commands that. But you know, a lot of times when others sin against us, it's actually God dealing with our own sin. 
God can prevent anything. A lot of times our idols are exposed, especially those things that get us really worked up. That is an indication of an idol right there. And the, the, main, the, 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 the only issue is not that this other person needs to make sure they don't sin against us. The issue is, I need to grow in my trust and love of the Lord. And God's pleased to reveal that. He is not doing it to, to punish us. He's doing that to reveal this so that we draw near to Him in prayer. And there are many other things that we are commanded to bring to God. First Peter 5 says that we are to cast all our anxiety on the Lord because He cares for us. Are you worried? Are you concerned about something? Are you anxious? Well, then take it to the Lord in prayer. You need wisdom. Have you been acting foolishly? First, uh, James 1.5 says that He gives wisdom to all who ask without reproach. Doesn't say, ah, you're too much of a fool, you don't deserve wisdom. No. The reason I'm asking for wisdom is because I lack it. But God gives it freely without reproach. Are you depressed, lonely, struggling, filled with hurt and pain? Go to the God who's always there, who bears your burdens. We may surely take these to the Lord. Are you burdened because you are struggling with sin and have fallen into sin? Where do you go? To whom else do you go? Except you take it to the Lord in prayer. Where else can you go to deal with sin? Is there another Savior? Can you save yourself? Is the Lord going to say, come back once you get your act together? No. Lord, I can't get my act together. Help me. Save me from this ongoing sin. And He will certainly, certainly answer. Uh, this is the context of Christ saying in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, the context is that you will find forgiveness. You will be granted pardon. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask. And it will be given to you. He will never say, come back once you've deserved it. Because he is not so deceived as to think that you will ever be able to deserve it, merit it, or earn it. So he freely grants it. And if Christ left heaven to come to earth, to suffer, bleed, and die for sinners, if he would go to that extent of drinking that cup, of His own wrath, then why would He be hesitant to send out His blessings of forgiveness to anyone who asks? Will Christ be willing to give His very life for sinners on the cross only to hold forgiveness and mercy to those who ask? Besides, recognition of one's sin and crying out for forgiveness means that God is at work in you. Because that is a gift of His grace. If you find yourself asking and seeking for His forgiveness, then He will certainly grant that forgiveness to all who ask. And if Christ forgave you when you were a rank unbeliever, how much more when you are now His beloved child? And prayer really is the power behind the work that believers do. 
Or we can take prayer so lightly. We think so lowly of it. We think it doesn't make it a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, suppose there's there's two saints. Uh, one is out there knocking on doors, out there on the mission field, out there in the middle of nowhere. Another saint just spends time in prayer, faithfully prays throughout the day. Who would we deem more faithful? Who would we deem more effective? Well, we'd probably deem the, the person out there more effective. Why? Is prayer nothing? Now, don't use that as an excuse to not do anything. If someone's in need. We'll be warm to be filled. I'll, I'll pray for you. When you can actually meet the need. But we do tend to have a low view of prayer. Now, there's an older Christian who was telling his young pastor about a difficulty he was having. And, of course, his young pastor didn't know what to do. And, and I come across that all the time. There's a difficulty. But the more and more you know, in pastoral ministry, you just realize, oh, I'm completely helpless. I, I, I have no idea what to do in the situation. And this young pastor said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what to do. The only thing I could do is pray for you. And this older man rebuked this young pastor and saying, what do you mean the only thing you can do? That's the best thing you could do. That's precisely what I want you to do. Pray. That's effective. You know, yesterday I, I sent out that, that email through one church about Sarah Humphrey, the, the Humphrey's middle daughter who's in the hospital. And she was on auction still. She wasn't doing well. And after sending that out, I got a few email responses back saying, you know, we're, we're praying. And it was shortly after that that she turned the corner and was released from the hospital. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. The Lord does work through prayer. We think that prayer is something of a last resort sometimes or something that really isn't effective. You know one of the top complaints or questions we get from visitors about our worship service is how long the pastoral prayer is. Just 10 minutes. Whereas Jesus said, could you not pray for even an hour? An hour? That's nothing. You can't even pray for an hour? We complain about 10 minutes. We, we, we think one-sixth of that is too long. But if we knew what prayer is, asking the immortal, invisible, God-only-wise for the things that He has promised, that He will promise to do, then we would not devalue it. But because we regard it so lightly, and do not see that it is talking directly to God on His throne who hears us, who cares for us, and promises to act for us. We hardly pray or utilize the most powerful weapon and greatest privilege we have. Spurgeon says, O oh God, you have given us a mighty weapon, and we have permitted it to rust. You have given us that which is as mighty as yourself, and we have left that power lie dormant. Would it not be a crime if a man were given an eye that he would not open, or a hand that he would not lift up? And what must we say of ourselves when God has given us 
power in prayer, matchless power, full of blessedness to ourselves and of unnumbered mercies to others. And yet that power lies dormant. How can we read Christ's promise here? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And forsake this amazing privilege and this amazing, powerful weapon. So may we make prayer a priority, both our private and public worship, attentively following the pastoral prayer, praying in the evening service. For we are praying to the God for whom nothing is is impossible and who hears us and longs to bless us as children as promised that whatever we ask in His name, He will do. And if He did not spare His only Son, but delivered Him up for us all, then how will He not also freely give us all things, especially when He has promised to do so? Amen. Father in Heaven, we ask that You would help us to utilize this wonderful channel, this powerful weapon. For we are helpless and we are unable to do anything in our own strength. Forgive us for the times that we have tried to take matters in our own hand, rely on our own strength, rather than relying on this wonderful channel of prayer. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.